If you brought your Bible, take it and go to John chapter 21. That's the last chapter in John's biography or gospel of of Jesus Christ. John chapter 21. Um, Several weeks ago, we began a four-week journey, a series of messages entitled Step Up, and I have challenged you every week to do just that. Uh, There is a very, very sad verse of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's in one of the major prophets, uh, the prophet Ezekiel. It's chapter 22 and verse 30. God is speaking here, and he said, I look for someone who would build up the wall and stand in the gap. In other words, I was looking for people, men and women, young and old, to step up, but I found none. So we got together several weeks ago, and the first week I challenged you to be responsible. Let's step up and let's take responsibility for our lives. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 contain what we call the sowing and reaping principle. Um, One thing you need to understand is that if you'd start sowing today what you wish you had sown all along, God is bound by his promise to engage that process and bless you because of it. So be responsible. The second time we got together, we talked about faithfulness, fidelity in marriage. Be faithful. Let's step it up in our homes and be faithful to one another. And I told you, the battle for marital fidelity is won and lost in the temptation phase. And one of the greatest tools at your disposal is a strong, biblically-centered commitment, conviction on simply doing what is right, People who are committed to doing what is right, not what is expedient or what feels good, but what is right are people very often that when tempted overcome that temptation. Last time we got together, I challenged you to change your world. Let's step up and let's change our world. Uh, It is very important that we as followers of Jesus Christ learn to invest our attention, invest our focus, invest our efforts in the arena or the environment in which we have the most influence and control, not the least. You see, I think one of the reasons so many people are angry out there in culture is because they're focused on the wrong arena. They have an opportunity to engage their environment and better it. It would make them happier, but instead they blame Washington, or they blame the president, or they blame Congress. They have no influence and control over Donald Trump or the senators or congresspeople in Washington. Today, I'm going to challenge you to step up and take the grace. What I'm really going to offer you today, and I hope and pray you'll listen and follow along and and process what I'm going to say, I'm really offering you some rest. I'm offering you some, some freedom, some liberty. I'm offering you less guilt, less shame, more progress in your faith walk. Today, I want to challenge every one of you, church, to step up and take hold of the grace that God is offering. Now, of all the biblical concepts, and there are many, we call them doctrines. Of all the biblical concepts in Scripture, I don't know that any of them is any more important than our topic today, grace. The subject of grace is terribly important for us to understand as a church. It is incredibly important for you to understand as an individual. Look, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you consider yourself a Christ follower or disciple of Christ, and you don't understand grace, guess what? You don't understand the gospel because the gospel is built upon the doctrine of grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, very simply, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, 
The reason I know a lot of people get this wrong is because when I watch them live, they don't live out the grace in which they were saved. I think a lot of people would say, no, it's by my model behavior that I am saved and gain approval before God. That's why they work so hard to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. That's why they work so hard to learn this book and build their knowledge. It's why they quickly slide off into that legalism trap because in their mind, it's not grace that, they've been, that saved them. It's their own effort. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter wrote, Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I know a lot of people who are all about knowledge. I know a lot of people in the church who are all about behavior modification. Hey, if you call yourself Christian, you can't do that. Hey, if you call yourself Christian, you shouldn't struggle with that. Listen, church, that may be so, but equally it's overshadowed by the profound power of grace. Grow in grace, not just knowledge. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God says, my grace is sufficient for all of you. That means that his grace sustains us in our difficulties, in our trials, when we fail, when we try to get back up. It's God's grace. It's not our promise never to do it again. It's not our promise that if you'll give me a second chance, I'll do better next time. It's none of that. It's God's grace. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Approach the throne of grace. God sits on a throne. It's not a throne of legalism. It's not even a throne of righteousness. It is a throne of grace, and do it with confidence, finding grace in our time of need. Do you know that the very last verse in, a whole, in the whole Bible, it's Revelation 22 and verse 21, the Bible ends with grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of God's people. Amen. Now, because grace is such a critical concept, because it is such an important vital principle. It's not surprising that our enemy does everything in his power to trip us up regarding grace. Do you realize that one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity that separates it from every other world religion known to man is grace? Do you realize that every other world religion, the enemy has fooled people into thinking it's not grace at all, it's behavior modification salvation, eternity with God in paradise. Many modern day and ancient religions teach that's up to you to earn. Or they cleverly blend a little bit of God's love with behavior modification. Christianity says, "Uh uh-uh. It's zero you and 100% God. For by grace, you are saved. But now, when it comes to those of us who are in the church, we know we're followers of Christ. We understand the events of Friday and the crucifixion and the resurrection on Sunday. It's not only that we've embraced it, we've appointed Jesus the boss in our lives. We want to follow after him. The enemy trips us up as to how to walk out the grace in our daily living. The enemy confuses the idea of of living out grace in light of my faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost like there are two extremes. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the legalist who ignores the grace as if I don't need it because I've earned my favor before God. And on the other hand, you've got people who it's just all about forgiveness. They trample the idea of grace by living a selfish, self-centered, self-sovereign lifestyle question I want you to consider, and it's a good question to ask anytime we get together, is what is grace? What is grace? 
Good question. We named this church intentionally 20 plus years ago, Grace Community Church. Why'd we do that? Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul wrote, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Good grief. That sounds important. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Good grief. That sounds fundamental. That sounds foundational. This sounds important, this idea of grace. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were saved by grace. Now you got to figure out what it means to be strong in it, to walk it out, to live it, to demonstrate it to others. A famous evangelist of the 20th century by the name of D.L. Moody, he described grace this way. Grace is the gift of God to man the moment he sees he is unworthy of God's favor. One more time. Grace is the gift of God to man or woman the moment we see that we're unworthy of God's favor. You realize that's the number one beef Jesus had with the Pharisees. They saw themselves as worthy, not unworthy. In fact, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. There are a lot of strange statements in there that Jesus makes in his first public sermon. But if you'll read that sermon with the understanding that the primary audience of Jesus were Pharisees, and everything Jesus was communicating in the Sermon on the Mount was to convince Pharisees who had manufactured their own rightness before God that they weren't as righteous as they thought. That's why when Jesus says, you know what, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you that if you think about it, you're just as guilty before God. And you scratch your head and you say, now wait just a minute. How can committing adultery be on the same level as just thinking about it? It's because both demonstrate our unrighteousness, our unworthiness before God. Jesus was not saying that it's just as bad on your family if you think about adultery as if you commit it. We all know that's not the case. So the next time you read the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew's biography, read it from the standpoint that Jesus is trying to convince self-righteous people who consider themselves worthy that they weren't nearly as worthy as they thought. John Piper has written, grace is power, not just pardon. That's what Dr. Timothy Keller was, was referring to. Grace is not, well, do whatever you want because God loves you. That's not grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he indicated, called that cheap grace. And the Bible does not describe God's grace as cheap. It's very costly. And when you realize how costly that grace is, when you realize the sacrifice involved, the humiliation involved, read about it for yourself in Philippians chapter 2. Paul describes the whole process. That's when God's grace becomes costly. It's power, not just pardon. You see, a life that focuses on a love relationship with God is one that gains a greater appreciation for grace. And the greater my appreciation for grace, the more power I then have over sin. It's the way it works. Someone has said, grace means that all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. Boy, there's plenty of shame to go around in many of our churches. And it ought not be, my friends. It ought not be. Grace means that all of our mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. We need to learn to look at our failures, at our shortcomings, 
our weaknesses as stepping stones towards success and confident or competence. But too often, you know what we do? We focus an undue amount of attention. We focus an undue amount of energy trying to camouflage our weaknesses. I see it all too often. People sit in my office or I sit in their office or we go to their home and we have a conversation. It's one of the most common misunderstandings I see all the time. You start talking about somebody's faith walk and where do they go? Well, they go to that problem and that problem and I need to do better here and I sure wish I could fix that. I sure wish I could solve this. This is my problem. Fail, 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 fail. You know what happens? Before long, your entire faith walk revolves around your weakness. Your entire perception of God and his impact in your life revolves around your weakness. It's time that stop. It's sad. People come to the conclusion that because they struggle in their marriage, well, there must be something wrong with my faith. No, not necessarily. People come to the conclusion, because I can't diet and exercise, because I'm not as healthy as others, there must be something wrong with my faith. No, the Bible doesn't say that. People come to the conclusion, I can't seem to get it together. I'm just not very good with money. Good grief, Pastor Mike. We struggle and live month to month. There's no way I could give as I should. There must be something wrong with my faith. No, I wouldn't say that. You don't understand God's grace. And I want you to. You see, your life, your faith walk, it should not revolve around your weaknesses. You understand that If you had no weaknesses, if there were no failures, if somehow you could bring your life into perfect alignment with God's plan, you wouldn't need Jesus. That's what the Pharisees thought they did. Jesus wants you to know that's not the goal. Here's the result of that kind of thinking. A weakness-centered lifestyle, leaving grace underdeveloped. You know, (laughs) I said this in the first service. If I die a few years from now and I realize I've just never become the man of prayer that I once hoped I'd be, that'll be okay. If if I die a few years from now and I I never really gained a a mastery of this book, mm, that won't tear me up. But if I die a few years from now and I've left grace underdeveloped throughout my entire Christian life, I will see that as a huge embarrassing failure. That's how important grace is. So from the pages of John's gospel comes a very important biblical principle. It's every bit as relevant today as it was in Jesus's day. It'll help you be strong in grace. For those of you wanting to understand grace, walk it out, live in it, and demonstrate it to others, I offer a man by the name of Peter. Peter realized That by following Jesus Christ, he could find grace. And when he found grace, he would find himself. Now, what's interesting about John's gospel is it sounds like it ends in chapter 20. When you get to the end of chapter 20, specifically in verse number 30, John writes, Jesus did many other signs, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, here's why I wrote this biography. I included everything that I thought it would be, nece- would be necessary to convince you that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Holy One of God. And then we go into chapter 21. Chapter 21 is like an epilogue. It's like, uh, oh, I want to tie up a few loose ends. Chapter 21 answers some very important questions. 
One in particularly is whatever happened to Peter. Now, you'll remember Peter's failure on the night of Christ's arrest. Three times Peter denied him and ran into hiding. The last time Peter is mentioned in the gospel is in chapter 20 and verse 8 where it says that Peter and John ran to the empty tomb. They saw the undisturbed grave clothes, but only John saw and believed. So what's going through Peter's mind at this point? Peter, as you know, was very charismatic. He had stood up for Christ on many occasions. Peter was willing to go out on a limb. Peter was willing to to take a chance. But in John chapter 21, Peter is defeated. He's beaten. He's discouraged. Look at verse 2 of 21. I'm going out to fish, Peter said. In other words, I failed at this disciple business, turned out to be a lousy follower of Jesus, so I'm going back to what I know. I'm going to catch fish. Well, guess what? He didn't catch any. According to verse 6, I think it is, or verse 3, excuse me, they fished all night, but they caught nothing. Now, it's early in the morning. I want you to imagine the frustration in that boat. They've been casting that net all night long and nothing. As they get closer to the shore, the sun has come up. Maybe there's a little fog over the water. And there's a man standing there next to a fire. He shouts, have you caught any fish? And they say, no. He says, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And so they decided to go ahead and do it. They throw it on the right side of the boat. And according to John 21, there were so many fish caught in that net, they couldn't bring it back over the side of the boat. That's when they realized that's Jesus. As soon as Peter put it together and said, there's my risen Lord, the Bible says he jumped out of the boat and he made a beeline for the shore. When he sat there for a while, at least, it was Jesus and Peter only. The text reveals that Jesus had made a fire. He was cooking them breakfast. Now, if you'll watch as we read, Peter's defeat, his discouragement, his brokenness were about to be replaced with a fresh understanding of grace. Look at chapter 21 and verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, all right, stop. He didn't call him Peter. It's interesting. You remember the story. He was known as Simon. Until Jesus changed his name to Cephas, which means Peter, the rock, okay? Here he calls him Simon, as much as to say, I know Simon's still in there, Peter. That's why you're so discouraged. I know what you're dealing with. Look at the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know exactly what he's talking about. Is he talking about the fish? Do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than fishing? We don't know. Do you love me more than you love these fellow disciples? We don't know. Do you love me more than these men love me? We don't know. But what we do know, thanks to the colorful Greek language, is that the love Jesus is expressing here is supreme love. It's called agape love. You've heard me talk about it before. It is sacrificial. It is selfless. It is supreme. Jesus asks Peter, Simon, do you agape love me? Now watch how Peter responds. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I, what's that next word? Love. But guess what the word is in Greek? It's not the same word Jesus uses. It's the word phileo. 
It's not supreme, sacrificial, selfless love. It's friendship love. The city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So Jesus asks Peter, do you agape love me? Do you supremely love me? Am I that important in your life, Peter? And Peter responds by saying, well, yeah, I love you. I mean, we're friends. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, I'm quite fond of you. Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh, then feed my lambs. Isn't that interesting? Even though Peter's love for Jesus wasn't what Jesus wanted, Jesus hasn't given up on Peter. He still gives him something to do. Keep reading, verse 16. So again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same name, Simon, same love, agape. Do you agape love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. I mean, you and I are tight. I really love you. Now, remember, I may be being a little sarcastic or maybe even a little humorous. Peter wasn't that way. Peter was broken at this point. Okay, Peter is discouraged. You know I only phileo love you. Well then, take care of my sheep. Verse 17. The third time he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Interesting. Three questions, same question, three times, very repetitive, perhaps in line with three denials from Peter. Peter, I just want to get this straight. You denied me three times, so I'm going to ask you three times, do you love me? Now watch the kind of love Jesus uses here. The third time, Simon, son of John, do you only phileo love me? That's the word translated love in verse 17. Peter, let's get this straight. I've asked you the question twice already. I say, do you agape love me? You say, well, I'm fond of you. So is that where we are? Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you only appreciate me? Are you just fond of me? That explains Peter's reaction. He was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? In other words, Peter's saying, you know everything. You know that if I'm honest with you, that you love me one way, but I only partially love you back. You know that I'm only fond of you, Jesus. My, my, my love is flawed, I'm not a very good disciple. Man, we should all be this honest and open before God. One thing I admire about Peter. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Now, I love verse 17. Because even after broken, brutal, honest disclosure... God, I'm not a very good disciple. Jesus, I've let you down. I denied you three times the night you were arrested. I didn't stand for you. I ran and hid in the shadows. If I'm honest before you, I don't love you like I ought. I'm a poor disciple. Jesus says, hang on, I'm not giving up on you, Peter. Jesus said, I know the rock is in there somewhere. So tell you what, feed my sheep. Keep reading verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, When you were younger and you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Somebody else will dress you. Somebody else will lead you where you don't want to go. In other words, Peter, when you were young and self-assured, strong-willed, you didn't sense your need for my grace. 
You figured your vocation made you acceptable. Your honesty and integrity made you acceptable or worthy. When you were young and you did everything for yourself, you probably thought you could achieve your own worthiness. But guess what? There's coming a day when you get old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else is going to take you and lead you. Someone else is going to dress you. Someone else is going to look after you. And I pray, I pray, Peter, because Jesus knew at that point that you recognize your need for me. Keep reading. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Do you know what history tells us? Church history tells us that in the first century, AD 61, they made Peter watch as they crucified his wife. And when she was dead, they started to crucify him, and he demanded they turn the cross upside down because he was, here comes a key word, unworthy of the same kind of death as his Lord. Read that verse again. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He died a hero, a martyr for the cause. Then he said to him, here it is, two words. A preschooler can understand it. Follow me. Wait a minute, God. You know, I denied you three times when you needed me most. I don't care. We're not talking about that, Peter. Follow me. Yeah. But when John and I saw that empty tomb, he put it together, but I just couldn't accept it. We're not talking about that, Peter. Follow me. Yeah, but the rest of these disciples, I mean, they've been on track from the very beginning, and I've been up and down and all over the place. You don't know how brutal these last few days have been on me, because I don't know if I believe in you or not. We're not talking about that, Peter. Follow me. You know what that is? That is an invitation saturated with grace. It's an invitation that anybody could understand, anybody could respond to, covered with grace. Question, how in the world would we ever lose sight of that? How in the world could our faith walk so quickly revolve around this long list of improvements we need to make? I think there are at least three reasons for this. How do we lose sight of God's grace? Number one, we live in a humanistic culture whose religion is the betterment of self. So if you, ladies and gentlemen, are not bettering yourself on all levels, you're falling behind. You're going to be judged by your fellow man. See? That's the way we look at each other. See? How many of you watched a ball game yesterday and kind of received the subliminal note that, man, I got to get in better shape? That commercial just told me I'm not saving enough for my retirement. That commercial told me my blood pressure's too high. I've got to do something about it. See? We live in a humanistic culture. We worship ourselves. Self is the measurement of all things. So if you're not improving yourself on all levels, you're inferior. That's why we lose sight of God's grace. We think we have to earn it. Here's another reason we lose sight. My criticism and overemphasis of the weakness in others. Do you know what I've learned about hypercritical people? People are all the time doing this. In the quietness of their own spirit and heart, they're doing this. That's why they're so miserable. See? Usually people that point out the flaws of others in the quietness of their own hearts and minds can't get beyond the faults of themselves. You don't know grace. 
you don't understand grace. And then number three, we lose sight of it because of an unhealthy commitment to an ever-changing ideal. Again, watch the Ryder Cup this afternoon. Watch professional football this afternoon. Pay attention to the commercial breaks. Listen to what people say around you. You should be making more money. You should be happier in your marriage. You should be able to afford a dream vacation. If you can't, you're doing something wrong. You realize that what was important 15, 20 years ago to culture is not important today? And what is important today may not be important 10, 15 years from now. We call that planned obsolescence. See, it's part of our culture. If it's not new, brand new, shiny, and works perfectly, then it's old and you need to throw it away and get something new. It's called planned obsolescence. It's a continual raising of the bar. If something is not new, then it's old, it's undesirable. Therefore, we need a constant reinvention of self. That's why we lose sight of God's grace. God's grace supersedes all of that nonsense and says, I don't care where you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you failed. I don't care how embarrassing it was. I love you. And I'm going to demonstrate that love in the most costly, sacrificial way I possibly can, my friend, because that is what grace does. Here's number two. What can I do then? What can I do to get in touch with grace? You want to get in touch with grace? You want to learn how to walk in it, live in it? Here's the answer. Focus on the love relationship with God. Do you realize when Peter hit the beach that morning, he probably had his own agenda of where he wanted to take that conversation? Where would you have taken the conversation? He hasn't seen Jesus since the day of his arrest. He's denied him three times. I would have wanted to say, now, Jesus, let's sit down. I've got to explain this. You know, John probably told you that I denied you three times. Let me explain what was happening, right? He probably wanted to apologize. He, he probably wanted a second chance. Maybe he wanted to cut ties completely because he felt so unworthy. And yet, what does Jesus do? He asks him one question three times. Do you love me? You, church, do you realize that biblically speaking, so much of your faith walk boils down to your answer to that one question? Do you love supremely, selflessly, God? If we're honest, like Peter, we'd have to say, ah, I'm pretty fond of God. Ah, man, he's always there when I need him, and I appreciate that. Man, I've got a strong devotion for God. I mean, we're pretty tight, but supreme, sacrificial, unselfish? I don't think so. Again, the beauty of the passage is that doesn't stop Jesus. I'll take what you can give me, Peter. We're not here to talk about your failure, your weakness. We're not here to talk about the 19 ways John's been a better disciple than you. We're here to talk about my grace and your love. So what can I do? Focus on the love relationship. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul came to understand God as saying, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So what did Paul do? Paul said, well, therefore, I'm going to throw a party in honor of my weaknesses. 
You say, he doesn't say that. He almost does. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. What kind of church we have if we had that kind of church? What if I put a microphone up here today and one by one we lined up and we walked, hi, my name is so-and-so and here's my weakness. Man, I struggle with that. Boy, I this and I that and I'm ashamed of that. Next. Boy, my name is so-and-so and this is my weakness. I wish I could be better in this area. I'm a lousy dad. I, I could be such a better husband if I just invest myself. I drink too much. I don't take care of my body. One thing after another. What if we did that? Okay, now, take a deep breath. We're not really going to do that, okay? <laughs> but what kind of church will we have? We'd have a church that knows grace is what we'd have. See? We wouldn't be that kind of church where you better make sure you say it the right way. Otherwise, you're going to be misunderstood and asked not to participate. <laughs> better make sure you don't do that in public, because if you do and somebody sees you, they're going to judge you, and you probably won't teach Sunday school anymore. <laughs> See? That's not the grace I know, church. That's not the grace that Jesus demonstrated to Peter in John chapter 21. Grace is God's gift to you just like you are, just where you are, and just like you are. Last question, and I'll quit. Where do I begin then? Where do I begin? If I focus on the love relationship, where do I begin to walk out this grace in my life? Answer comes from verse 19. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. You see, when you follow Jesus, you're going to develop a thirst for that grace. You're going to develop an appreciation for that grace. That appreciation for that grace is going to deepen that love relationship. And when you find grace in that kind of love relationship, you are going to find you. Not just your failures, not just your mistakes. You're going to find yourself. Our history books tell us that Peter went on to be one of the most, if not the most, influential man in the first century early church. He delivered a powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and thousands of people joined the cause. He wrote two letters in the latter part of your New Testament. He died a martyr's death, a hero for the cause of Jesus Christ. None of that, none of that would have ever been the case had he failed to respond to Christ's simple invitation. Peter, follow me. You see, because of grace, it really is that simple. So I'm challenging you today. Take the grace. Step up and take the grace. And if your love for Jesus is only fondness like Peter's, own it. Be honest. Be upfront about it. But follow. In fact, I'll leave you with this. By following Christ, we find grace. And by finding grace, we find ourselves. Examine your love for God, church. Keep it simple. If it's like Peter and it's only fondness, that's okay. God isn't finished with you yet. God has a plan. He still wants to work in your life. Focus on your love relationship with God and follow. Here's how we're going to close the service. I'm going to ask Cade to come up here and strum his guitar, provide a little music. We're going to turn the lights down a little bit. I'm going to ask you to stand in a few minutes, and I'm going to give you your time. Uh, to me, this is obvious. Two things ought to occur here. If you're here and you've never embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ, then you don't know grace. 
You ought to talk to one of us today about that. So I'll be down front. Jonathan will be down front. If you want us to pray with you, then come grab us. We'd love to pray with you. Others of you, however, that have already embraced faith in Jesus, I'm asking you about your love. Where is it? What is it? What's it look like? Answer the question, Peter. Do you love me? I think every one of us, regardless of how long we've been at this, every one of us today could take time either in our seat or down here at the stage with me and say, God, I want to love you more. Today should be the day that you examine it and do something about it. Would you stand, please?